When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast and the president at Chatham University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm delighted to be here today with my old colleagues, uh, Sheldon Sh- or Shelley Schuster and Jim Sterling from the Keck Graduate Institute in Claremont, California. Shelley and Jim, it's great to be with you today. Great to be here, nice too, to David. Be here. I'm really glad you're, uh, you're doing this, and uh, thank you. So I wanted to start out just, if, if you wouldn't mind, just telling us a little bit about your own background, sort of where, where you grew up and your education, and then the start of your careers. Shelley, you want to go first? Sure, why not? So uh, let me start by just saying, uh, if you want to go way back, uh, I, I was uh, born and raised in Northern California uh, by, uh, by first-generation uh, non-college-going, uh, non-high school-graduating uh, parents. Uh, who, who uh, didn't know much about education, except they really knew that I needed to have it. <laughs> so they were very supportive. Went off to UC Davis, uh, mainly at the time, went off to UC Davis because it wasn't Berkeley, and everybody was afraid to go to Berkeley at the time because this was the, the uh, I hate to say what year it was, but <clears throat> late 60s, um, and, and there was a lot of turmoil on, on campuses. Uh, went to Davis and, and didn't have really a very good uh, experience beforehand uh, in, in science at all. It wasn't interested in it at all. Uh, but when I got to Davis, uh, through personal interactions, through relationships with some, some individuals based on some social things that I did, uh, got involved in, in a laboratory working with a, uh, a professor. Uh, did, I you know, basically started washing dishes and, and cutting barley seeds for, for a living to get, to get through college. Uh, and really saw that this was, uh, this was kind of exciting. The people who were doing this were, were very passionate. They, they seemed like they were having a really good time learning a great deal and making a difference. And uh, so when I was uh, about to graduate, uh, I'll sort of never forget the uh, discussion I had with my with my advisor in the biochemistry department at, at UC Davis. And I said, so what do you think I ought to do? And I will never forget the discussion. And we said, well, you probably ought to go to medical school. And I said, well, yeah, but you have to deal with sick people. He goes, well, yeah, of course, dummy. What do you think? <laughs> And I said, so what, what's the alternative? And he goes, well, you go to graduate school. And I said, well, I don't know much about that. What else could I do? He says, well, drive a truck, I guess. <laughs> and so, you know, I could never really do that backing up thing with the, with the truck very well. So I figured, I said, so, well, let, let's go back to number two. And he said, well, you actually, a good friend of mine is going down to the University of Arizona to set up a biochemistry department. Uh, why don't you go there? Okay. So that's the rest that's is history. Right? That was, that was was all of the planning that I did, literally, in choosing a career. And it clearly was the most monumental. It was a wonderful experience. I really enjoyed my time at the University of Arizona. Uh, got my PhD, went off to the University of Wisconsin to do a postdoc with Henry Lardy, uh, and then started my academic career at the University of Nebraska on the faculty, uh, and then moved to the University of Florida directing the, the biotech program. And I went to Florida partly because I had Gotten, gotten a taste of the biotech industry back in the, in the, uh, the late 70s, and early 80s, 
and several of us actually formed the first biotech company in Nebraska. Uh, and uh, it, it was such great fun, and we learned so much about it. I thought, this, this, this has some future. There, there's, there's some stuff going on here. Uh, and so ran the core laboratories in the biotech program at the University of Florida. Uh, and then uh, was, was called by some headhunters wanting to know if I'd be interested in a, in a job in Southern California. And I said, well, of course not. Why would anyone possibly live in Southern California? I had been raised in Northern California, where we were taught from you know, a very young age that civilization really sort of ended as you went south. It kind of you know, probably faded out somewhere in the middle there. And there really wasn't much civilized. You know, people didn't really live down in Southern California. So, uh, so, so I, I, I actually asked, I, I, so Hank was actually running the search. And uh, I said, so why don't you come out and we'll, we'll talk. And he came out and he said, okay. Because I said, I'm really hesitant to come out to Southern California. I don't know much about this place. It's, it's brand new. I mean, I, I didn't know anything about it. So he literally flew out to, uh, to Jacksonville. We, we spent the day, a wonderful day. Uh, we, we had hamburgers and, and talked about the future of biotech and education. And I was hooked. That did it. Right. I came out, I visited. Um, I remember meeting you and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the faculty, David, and Jim. And uh, I, I remember talking, I can't remember the specific things we talked about, except two things that really sort of still strike me, and I still chuckle about it. Uh, one of them was I met the students, and, and I said, well, yeah, you guys have told me all this good stuff. You guys are on good behavior. I said, what are the bad things going on? And they said, well, they make us work really hard, and there's all everything is in teams. Done. I said, okay, you know, the, the working hard, oh, that's horrible. I can't, oh, no, 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 working hard. No, not that. And, and then I remember talking with a group of faculty, and I can't remember who was in it, and I remember the question, and they said, well, you know, our goal at the time was to have about 60 students in the MBS program, and they said, do you think the industry can handle 60 students, 60 graduates a year? And I started laughing, and I'm still laughing. Because obviously, as we all now know, I mean, 60 is a teeny tiny number in the demand of this incredible industry that has obviously come a long, long way in the last uh, what, what, 18 years from, from that event. So, uh, I, and I have, I have um, you know, so been here since uh, 2003, uh, building and growing and working with folks like you guys. Uh, and this has really been the, the, the sort of the, the most rewarding experience in my life. Thanks so much for that, Shelly. Bef- Jim, before I ask you about your background, would you share a little, Shelly, about, because your biotech company was, you know, the first in Nebraska, but that you were really in at the very early stages of the growth of the biotech industry. So what was that company set up to do? It came from, uh, several of us had an experience doing consulting with what was in the Finn Sugar Company, the Finnish Sugar Company. Uh, there, was, there were three of us in Nebraska who were involved Consulting for them, they made they 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 provide they made an enzyme from from uh, aspergillus. They made tons and tons of the enzyme. They put it onto these these huge columns, and they converted glucose to fructose. So they were making high fructose corn syrup, and we were their consultants about the enzyme, and it was just kind of fun. And and I will again talk about not knowing anything, but kind of whatever. Uh, they. Um, they, they, we, we had to go out to, to Helsinki a couple times to consult with them about they were having problems. And it was just so much fun, and we learned so much. And one of the things that again, was so great is, you know, you, I, I was trained to work in laboratories where we had, you know, columns that were, you know, a, a big one was, you know, a meter. I mean, that was, that was a giant uh, separation column. 
uh, we went out there and they were working with these columns that were four stories high uh, and had you know 10 to 12 tons of material in them and they were producing stuff literally by the by, by the crate you know, they, were, they were making these tons of, and I remember one time we were there and they had they were having problems with this column not being particularly efficient wasn't working so they were digging, they, they, they went through it, and they found a shovel that had been left in the thing. That, you know, like, well, this was just fun. I, I just thought this was really, really cool. And, you know, we thought this was this was kind of neat. And so the three of us were, were sort of kept bugging the uh, the management of the Fincher company, say, look, let us go off. We have some really cool ideas to do some other stuff in biotech. And this this was early. This was like 1980, this was 1980 1981, if I remember the dates correctly. So, you know, it was still, you know, the, the first – stuff was just really coming out and um, uh, they they, uh, they said well, well how about you guys just kind of start your own company and we'll give you some seed money to get it going because we don't you know we don't think we don't know enough uh, and it's not kind of our we make sugar that's what we do you know we if we can make it if we can buy it for 50 cents a ton and sell it for 52 cents a ton we're cool you know and, and that's not that's not about <laughs> and so they, they uh, it was good news and bad news. They, they, they gave us some money, but they also gave us a CEO. And so it was a really, it was a fascinating experience. And we started that company out, you're now getting to your question. We started the company out, and the first thing we were producing, we had made, we were just early on in making monoclonal antibodies in our laboratory for, for our research purposes. But at the same time, we made a monoclonal antibody, which was very, very specific for mercury. So we could develop a test for mercury uh, in water. And at the time, it was becoming obvious that mer mercury contamination in, 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 you know, in groundwater and uh, runoff water was a, was a big deal. And we said, well, we'll, we'll, make, a, we'll make an antibody-based test and, uh, you know, start a company and, and uh, you, know, because, you know, the world will be, you know, beat a path to our, to our doorstep and pay us money. And that was about as much marketing as we did. But I'll never forget we we went to uh, we went to the uh, uh, to, to a, a steakhouse in in, uh, in Nebraska and the three of us set up a company and we all put sixty seven dollars into the pot and hired a lawyer to incorporate us and we started Bio Nebraska and and that was that was it like I say we got a few hundred thousand dollars from Fred Sugar and the, the CEO and it, it turns out you know I, these are all learning experiences and it's okay for things not to work well but it, at some point. Um, you know, you got to learn from it. And like I said, we didn't do any marketing studies. We never, we never thought, well, okay, got an antibody, got a test. Who's going to use it? Who's going to buy? What will they pay? What we learned was that we, we knew that the, the competitive technology was, was atomic absorption. And they were charging something like $50 a test. What we never realized was they could cut the cost down to a dollar a test. And they'd still make money on atomic absorption. <laughs> so we succeeded in lowering the cost of a mercury test from about $50 to $2. And nobody bought our antibody, but we learned a lot. And, and what we then did, we pivoted because we were, you know, we, we really did enjoy this. We were having a wonderful time doing this. We pivoted to making making synthetic peptides using a combination of, of chemical synthesis uh, and and uh, cloning, gene cloning. So we were able to make the glucagon-like intestinal peptide, and we got into a battle with amylin pharmaceuticals. And amylin, because the, the the use for this blip protein was in treating diabetes, and we wanted to use it for congestive heart failure because we had indications that it might work for that. Anyway, I'll never forget, we, we got in a battle, and, and that's how I got to know Dan Radbury, who's a dear and close friend, a member of our board, and a wonderful guy. 
and uh, anyway, we, we um, it, it's one of those things where I, I can say, you, you got to keep learning from all this. Mm -hmm. And so we raised a whole bunch of money over time. Um, and uh, we actually set up a production facility in, in Lincoln, uh, not huge, but a good sized bioprocessing facility to make this synthetic lip. Uh, and we were about to start a clinical trial, uh, and we were actually planning to have all of our investigators come to Lincoln on September 12, 2001. Good timing. Good you, timing. You, you, yeah. you can't beat that timing, can you? No, it, it, you know, it just doesn't get any more. Yeah. That one. Well, I, you know, yeah. the world stopped, right? Yeah. And it turns out that, that um, we were, we were, we were, you know, the only time, so it took literally, I mean, if you remember those times, it was sure. pretty scary times. Uh, we were not able to rearrange that meeting until literally after, well, it actually was, it was November when it could actually arrange the meeting. And you said, well, again, another little, little factlet that you learn, you don't start clinical trials before the holidays because people won't enroll, people won't adhere, things like that. So the, the earliest we could start it was February, and by that time we were we were dwindling money and the, the yeah. money curve and the timing curve, and we ended up bankrupt. Hmm. You know, but what I will say is, was it a success? I will say it was a rousing success because Amelin bought their technology from the bankruptcy court <laughs> and is using it, to, and and now again I guess you thought by Bristol Myers or whatever that that pathway ultimately led. People are benefiting from it. Good. I feel kind of good about it. Did I make a lot of money? No. But that, that's not, you know, at the end of the day, I get to say that we did something that moved the science along, mm -hmm. moved the technology along. And so I, I look at it as, as a rousing success. And I will also say that the people who funded it have also said, yeah, come on back when you got some other ideas. This is, this is kind of cool. We had fun doing this. And we all learned that it was honest. And, and you, you, you know, you just, you know, it's science, it's business. You know, and 9/11, whatever. Yep. Don't make that one into it. Uh, but that again, I'm sorry for the long-winded answer to your question. But it was a wonderful experience, and uh, I, I think uh, I mean now, Bio Nebraska is the statewide industry organization, so the, the right. company doesn't exist. But I, 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 we all are really pretty proud of being able to do that and get it started and get it going and getting involved and learning from it and maybe helping. So Jim, how about you? How did you uh, first get into the career as a as a bioengineer? I'll, I'll I'll address that. I just wanted to comment that uh, the timing that Shelley just mentioned is similar to trying to start a cystic fibrosis respiratory clinical trial at the start of COVID. Yeah, and so that's oh. what that's what my wife's company is, is, ah. is doing, and they've suffered in a similar oh, way. I haven't thought about Absolutely. That. Right. Oh my God! Yeah. Yeah. Recruit, recruit patients because yeah. there's so much capacity out there for respiratory right now, right? Yeah. So, oh my God! Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gee. The other thing I wanted to comment on was when I think probably you and I first met Shelley at your house. I think that's right. Um, I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, one thing it I, was yes, it was at your house, David. It was at your house. I remember that. And one thing I've said about um, recruits, the recruiting uh, talent, has to do with the language they use during their first interactions, whether they use you and I versus we. And Shelley, from the moment he stepped into your house, was saying, um, okay, what are we going to do? You know, 
what are we going to do next and what do you want to do as we as we grow this institution mm -hmm. so we we knew right away that uh that he was going to be a, a great leader for kgi um my own background um i was mechanical engineering i come from uh, college station texas because my that's where Texas A&M is located. Yep. My dad was a faculty member there. Is that a college? A little, oh, little, little <laughs> small unknown college in Texas. Yeah. Um, Agricultural and Mechanical College of Texas. What position did you play? <laughs> yeah, it was all football. And so, ultimate frisbee. That's right. right we're we're ruining your podcast, David. My apologies. So. I grew up there and went into mechanical engineering at A&M as an undergrad, and then I came out to Caltech, uh, and, and that's what brought me to California originally, was coming to grad school. Again, in mechanical, and the first part of my career was in aerospace propulsion, and but it, mechanical engineering was, was, uh, was my background. And then in about uh, 1999, it was in 1999 that I heard about this new institution. And we lived in Upland here next to the Claremont Colleges because my wife was a professor at Harvey Mudd College. And I, I knew Hank Riggs uh, socially because he had actually hired Shenda at Harvey Mudd when he was the president of Harvey Mudd. And so that, um, I knew about the new venture um, and I contacted Hank and said, what are you going to do about engineering? And he said, what do you think we should do about engineering? And so uh, we started a dialogue and, and I, was, I was hooked, not just because of the, the mission of bioengineering uh, and the, the field and topic, but the entrepreneurship aspect of it. Mm -hmm. This is a, a new venture in higher ed. And I, I love the idea of marrying um, you know, up and coming new uh, science industry with being entrepreneurial in higher ed. And so then I, I, I joined and uh, as a as the first engineering faculty who arrived at KGI, number seven or eight, something like that, and then eventually became the dean and VP for academic affairs, and then now I'm back on on regular faculty uh, doing research and teaching and enjoying every minute of it. And and Jim. I've had a chance, you know, on the podcast earlier to talk, unfortunately, as we know, Hank has passed, but talk with Gail, talk with David Gallus about those early days. What What are your memories of those those first few years of being part of that startup team at, at, at KGI? Oh, it, was, it was just really an exciting time. You're, you know, they, they had thought about building uh, a campus on the northern property that had been reserved specifically to add new Claremont colleges. Um, but in, in the end, bought this facility uh, uh, south of the railroad tracks, which um, at brilliant. the time. It was brilliant. It was brilliant. But it was. It, it <laughs> Thank was, goodness, right? Oh, <laughs> yeah. gosh. And so we moved right into this big oh. space with three oh. big buildings. And I can remember walking into what is now the, the largest of those buildings. And some of the faculty were located down there when I visited. Um, which is, was leased out subsequently to a big petrochemical company and has provided a lot of revenue over the years in the form of rent. Um, that, but now we're just at the point where we're kind of filling that space and yeah. we're um, moving, moving into that. But that was wonderful to have that, um, that space and, and then be part of watching how 
renovations happen as we as we grow and add add people. And I can remember, you know, when when you came on, and then eventually Steve Casper and Angelica and uh, all all of us uh, who were here early on, it was a really uh, camaraderie was wonderful it was a great team and uh and then we had to adjust and pivot so and that's i guess what we'll spend some time talking about today yep (laughs) (laughs) but before before we talk about you know so how kgi has evolved jim i know one thing you've thought a lot about and shelly i'm sure you too is is you know, KGI wasn't just a startup as the newest of the Claremont colleges and a, a brand new institution that people hadn't heard of, but it was actually seeking to create a whole new kind of degree. The, you know, the master of business and science, the the, the fusion of business ethics and the life sciences, both the engineering side and, and the lab-based side. And, you know, the question you alluded to, Shelley, you know, w- w- will they hire 60 grads? The reality was th- there wasn't anyone advertising for MBS grads, right? People hired PhDs, they right. hired MBAs, but right. we were trying to introduce a new kind of graduate to the market. And yet, if you look today at the the roster of employers of KGI grads, right, it's, it's a who's who of biotech, Amgen, you know, Genentech, Regeneron, you, you name it. So, so what do you think, what has been the, the, the keys to the success of, of enabling the, the graduates, you know, from this new place with a new kind of degree to do as well as they, they've done? You want to nail this with Jim? <laughs> you know, I, 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 boy, that is, that is the key question, David. It really is. I mean, what, what have we done? And it's obviously not one thing. It, it is a bunch of stuff. And, and let me just step back for just a second, because the innovations that Hank and all of you founding faculty really took on, as you say, was not just the educational innovation. You also had to boil the ocean. You had to educate the employers and the potential students. So that is a huge task. But, you know, and, 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 I, and I have to say, I, I, th- I hope it was taken on out of a sense of naivete in reality. It would be too daunting if anybody gave it too much thought, right? I mean, I'm, I'm being partly facetious here. I mean, I know obviously you guys had thought about this, but but it is really a, an enormous challenge. And, and I go back to you know the history of Yale, for example. When they started their business school, it wasn't an MBA. It was a master's of, of management. But after something like 30 or 40 years, they gave up and gave in and they gave an MBA. And, and so, so, I mean, that, that's with the marketing power of, in, you know, reputation of a, of a Yale, right, whatever. So, so taking on those sort of three enormous tasks um, is just a mark of, of, of sort of an incredible um, uh, boldness. And I, and I think that I, I, don't, I don't think you can overstate the, uh, the sort of the, the, uh, the, the challenge that, that Hank and you folks took on and how important it is to do it. And I, I used to tease Hank a little bit. I said, did you guys ever do a marketing study? He said, heck no. Because if you had done it, you might not have taken this on. I, I don't know what you say to something like that. You know, but, 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 but so, so anyway, but, but, but I think you, you get the point. And, and so, but to, to answer your question, David, it's, it's, it's against it's partly educating, educating the, the, the biotech market, and what that takes is building relationships with individual companies and doing it. It's a, you know, it's it's guerrilla warfare. It's one at a time. It's one company at a time. 
because when these HR folks look at their little drop downs, MBS wasn't on a drop down. You know, that's a BS, but there wasn't an MBS, right? So we had to work with them. And 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 at the same time, then the, the students who we were talking to said, well, what, what, what you know, I don't, what is this going to be? What does it do? What is it going to enable me to do? And, and that's, that's all. You have to have a conversation. It, you can't just put the buzzword up. And undergraduates, I know this is going to come as a shock to you, David, are highly influenced by their faculty. Well, where do their faculty come from? Well, from PhD granting institutions, where essentially PhDs are for free. Okay, or you pay to do those kinds of things. And I do remember actually going to a class at your alma mater, by the way, sir. And I walk, and I gave the talk about the MBSs many, many, many. And I gave the talk about the MBS program, and I, and I walked out, and I, I, I said, oh, I forgot something, whatever it was, and I went back in. And he was telling the class, don't go to any place where you actually have to pay for graduate education. I get it. You know, I, I really do. And so, so the competition is not just, it has not just been, you know, with other, you know, with other, with other, you know, master's programs or MBA programs and things like that. It's with graduate education and how we see it and what the opportunities are. So it, it has been an enormous effort, and and the and the which I think what you have to do is start building the successes. And you guys again took on you 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 subsidized the first class, like the first two classes, if I remember correctly. You start slowly, and you just keep raising the money to keep it going, and you just keep fighting the battle and fighting the battle. The other thing that I think helped us out, so and you, and you you start to build some momentum. It takes time. I mean, the, the weird part of our industry, if you will, and all of academia is basically you have essentially one sales cycle a year. Right? So you get your data in September. Okay, what are we doing? You know, I mean, you know it better than anybody, right? So it, it's, a, it's a weird business. You can't sort of constantly adjust every month and, you know, weekly sales have no meaning in, in, in our environment. So you can't say, okay, what, what do we do this year? How did the recruiting work? What, what was effective? What wasn't? And... And, and this was also the time when there was really, I think, a transition between how recruiting was done and how marketing to students was done. This was at the cusp of, you know, I mean, the Internet had been there, right? It, that wasn't new at the time. But it was being used for many, many more things that people were starting to incorporate into these cell phone things and, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the social media was just sort of beginning in reality. Uh, yeah. When was Google founded? I can't remember, but you know those kind of things were, were sort of coinciding with all of these all of these all of these changes. Um, so it was a it was it was a combination of trying to do all of those kind of things. But I also think one of the other kinds of things that was important for us to do was start to think about building a portfolio of programs, because what it enables you to do is not just market another program, if you will, because that also has additional costs, whatever. But you can start the discussion with a broader group of students. Oh, well, you may not be interested in the, the, the pre-medical kind of program that we're putting together, but have you thought about working in industry? Or, gee, you're, you're coming with an engineering background. You might actually benefit. So, so it broadens the opportunity to have the kinds of discussions that you can look at. So I think one of the kinds of things has been it's a, a, a weird combination of, of focus and breadth. And those are opposite. And I don't know how to balance them. The other thing is, I think you have to have a real comfort um, with making mistakes and learning from. Them. I think that's crucial, you know. And and you just have to try stuff. Uh, I, I hope we get to the time when Jim and I can talk to you about the founding of the uh, the, the PPM program. 
uh, because that is one of those things where you, sometimes you got to try stuff. And again, I would say we learn from that program as well and, and broaden that program. But, mm -hmm. but uh, I, I, again, I, I apologize for being long-winded, but I get, I get passionate about this stuff. I, and, and, I, and I also remember so many times people saying, well, how do you do this following thing? And the answer is, I don't know, we've never done it. Figure it out. So you have to have people who are also very comfortable with ambiguity and are willing to be self-starters. I want to just follow up, and we I think we will spend quite a bit of time talking about the portfolio and, and the, the, as we developed and, and grew, how did we add programs and program directors who were passionate enough about that program to succeed. Yeah. But I, I, I did want to go back to the, the start and the challenge of how do you launch this new institution with a new degree. One of the keys that Shelley alluded to was the, um, the industry connection and how you talk to industry. And one of the most important investments that the institution has made all along is in corporate partnerships. Great and then in leadership on, yeah. on the point. board yeah. and the corporate advisory board. Yeah. The, all of those connections to industry engaging the leadership from industry from the beginning and, and you mentioned Dan Bradbury. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the Amgen connection with Dennis uh, and uh, all of the, the, uh, the, the Becker Coulter connections. Oh, no, you're 100% right. Those connections were the, the fuel. And also, I will also say, uh, let's not forget the TMP. And that kind of was a legacy also of Harvey Mudd. Legacy, heck, we stole it. The best form of flattery, right? We 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 we, we adapted it. it. Yeah, that we just we changed its name, but you know they right. call it the, we call it the TMB. But hey, whatever. Right. Yeah. You know, no, I mean, I think that those are the, you're absolutely right, Jim. Thanks for reminding me of that. It, it's it's you, you have to build those connections, and and this was one of those things of you know I mean I think I think you know I mean Jim ran these programs and, and you know they, they really flourished under his leadership. Being able to do real live projects for companies, with companies, and with company leadership—that's what—that's what got those so many of those students jobs, yep. good jobs, because they got to audition for the company, learn what it's like to work in a company. I mean, these were never pretend projects mm -hmm. because the company paid money. Yep. Uh, I, I will also say, well, the, one of the things that I think we did that was was clever at the beginning or near the beginning was we completely eliminated any any um, request that we own the intellectual property. I don't know who I'm going to offend by saying this, but it kept the lawyers out. Mm -hmm. You know, just just lower the friction uh, about doing these kind of. Yeah, if they discover the great cure for whatever, we'll we'll, we'll deal with it later. But mm -hmm. you know, we always knew we would get more from them from donations or from the corporate partners or from the, the leadership of the companies. Um, and, and the other thing I, I think we 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 learned from that was it's. Companies are not philanthropic. People are. Mm -hmm. So having the corporate leadership, having the, the, the people who, who, who care uh, and interact with these, uh, these, young, these young students, uh, that, that's where the, the, real, the real stuff happens. And yeah. My God, it, it's actually kind of really wonderful to see some of these graduates in that first class or two. They're getting to be CEO types. Real close to them. Mm -hmm. Transition to have some of those early graduates become the corporate liaisons on the yes. same kinds of projects, yeah, projects yeah. was great, and then now some of them are too senior to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've seen, we've witnessed that. 
that, that, that's by senior uh, I just mean old. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a really great sign of project progress. And Jim, in addition to all the key roles you've played at KGI, you also wear the hat of of hosting the Professional Science Masters uh, National Organization. And that's something which sort of evolved. Interestingly, you know, I had a chance first at KGI and then creating the Rutgers wide version of that um, to be part of that movement that the Sloan Foundation other than KGI, it really seeded the funding of all of those programs around the country, but then it stopped funding it. And so I'm curious, how has that movement evolved? Because it's really dealt with that same issue we were talking about for the MBS, right? That's sort of the microcosm of this broader effort to bridge the science with the, with the, and engineering with the business side. It's a, it's a great question. You, you were such a pioneer in leading that whole effort at, at Rutgers um, that kind of took this thing, some of the ideas and the, the foundations that we had from KGI on those professional science masters. And the PSM brand um, gained some recognition. Every year when we had our first class of MBS students arriving to start the year, we would ask them, do you know what a PSM is? Most of the American students did not know what a PSM was. Half of the Indian students probably raised their hands and said, I was searching PSMs and I found KGI. <laughs> so um, what, what's interesting about the PSM is um, that there's a guy named uh, um, Sean, uh, who, who, Sean here at, uh, in Upland. Oh, Gallagher? Yeah, his name is Sean Gallagher, but he's a, he's a higher ed guy at... Um, uh, oh, same name. <laughs> same name. Same name. Okay. Sean Gallagher wrote a book about higher ed, uh, the master's degree in higher ed. Okay. And um, he's at Northeastern. And and his point is that was really that the master's degree is the wild west of higher ed. Master's degrees can be most anything. And what I we had a decision point at one point at KGI where we were trying to decide: Are we going to Kind of be engaged in the PSM movement and try to use that as a brand, use that as a recruiting tool for our programs, and maybe launch more that are officially PSMs. And I joined on to, to say, yeah, let's give this a continue to give this a shot. Uh, let's stay with the movement. And we actually became an, the organization that oversaw, we, we, we housed the PSM national office at KGI, sort of the way a journal editor might house the journal at their institution. So we, we housed the PSM national office and we manage the process of what is the equivalent of accreditation for PSMs. We did that for several years and it couldn't quite even pay for itself in terms of institutions being willing to pay some money for the accreditation process. It cost money to, it costs sure. travel time and the yeah, time of time, yeah. faculty yeah, and so forth to, ma to manage that. We actually then ended that um, and handed it back to the um, NPSMA, which is the National Professional Science Masters Association. And they, they're taking that on now. And, and we've ceased to be affiliated. Uh, our MBS program is no longer affiliated as a PSM. And I think the reason is that 
um, PSMs can be created out of um, a smorgasbord of course offerings, existing course offerings. And this is really what you leveraged well at Rutgers was the ability to take the existing courses and create this, these offerings. Um, and so what you end up doing is perhaps offering some coursework only with a capstone. And so many, many, many of these programs are 30, 36 credit hours, 36 credit masters. If you look at professional health science masters, they're at least 50 or 60 credit hours by the time you have enough experiential learning to warrant calling it a professional degree. So in, in some ways, I feel like the PSM moniker doesn't really apply because it's it's not quite enough to warrant the, the P in PSM. So that's kind of our our dis, disassociation with the right. PSM. And just to set the record straight, unless it's changed, Rutgers was 48. So we did a core of the business piece that you could add on to the science. Because I absolutely take your point, just renaming a master's that has a little token business is, is not the intent. But it's right. sad... I'm disappointed because I haven't been as close to it to hear that, you know, that brand and that approach has not flourished in the way that was originally hoped. But it's good that KGI still is. Yeah, it, you know, it, it, you, you, you try these things. I think it was yeah. a good idea when it when it started to put these to put us all together and have this branding. Mm -hmm. Does it still exist? Do they have PSM? It, I don't even yeah. I haven't looked at it for a If you go to the NPSMA website, yeah. they still do marketing. They have it's primarily a group of program directors. This, this question of, you know, the uh, higher ed and the, and the wild west of higher ed being masters sort of parallels the idea of what is a program director. And we've been having this conversation at KGI because now that we have so many health sciences programs with program directors, you have some pretty senior people in program director roles. And then we also have programs, certificate programs that, who have, that have program directors who are staff members. Right. And so right. sort of, if you look at the spectrum it's of right. it's what a, the heck is a program yeah. director. It, That's right. Yeah. So, so right. Shelly, you, you shared, you know, what a tremendous learning experience that first startup was in Nebraska. Jim, I know you mentioned Shendas, but you've been part of several of them. I, one of the other exciting things I remember from those early years of KGI was that even as we were figuring out what the degree would be and the first graduates and whatnot, we were already starting companies as well, partly because we thought this could be another, this is important for the world, get technology out, could be another revenue stream. But also we realized it was an amazing learning experience for the students. I'm wondering how, how that has continued as part of, of KGI. Are you continuing to see that activity from faculty and, and students? And, and how does that sort of integrate with the education? We, we You're on the tip of the spear. <laughs> Jim's company, even now, is doing I think, a great job of that. We, we, we continue to innovate and have new companies. Um, we hire faculty who are interested in entrepreneurship. I teach with Joel West. Um, we, we've always had sort of a dual instructor role for our business plan writing course. Uh, David Gallus had started that with Bob Curry. Who was, I remember those first courses, yeah. <laughs> so having them launch it and use their experience and, and expertise in, in entrepreneurship to, 
to bring in students as an elective. So it, it's sort of an elective for the more entrepreneurial students. Um, but we continue to do projects where we get the projects from tech transfer offices around the around Southern California and California, Northern California, mostly. Um, and we'll have four or five projects a year where we write a business plan for the company, and then the students give a pitch. Uh, they give a pitch to executives and, and VCs that we recruit folks to come in and and, uh, and judge judge the pitch. So. And they're always in the life sciences, you know. It's, uh, it's so there's the mix of business and science that fits really well with the, the philosophy of the MBS. And we also, just to add to Jim's point, uh, we also encourage faculty to. You know, to mm -hmm. we're, we're thrilled he's he's you know part of a company that's just doing great stuff. Uh, we have several other faculty that have founded companies, uh, and I actually have been trying to connect them with some other uh, trustees or potential trustees who have interests in the same kind of areas. How do we? How do we facilitate this? I mean, one of them is, is I think it's called Shield Pharma. I, think I could mess that up. Uh, which is, which is, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, repurposing drugs uh, for treatment of infectious diseases. Gee, can infectious disease treatments be important? Just thinking. Uh, and and you know, they're they're you know again, again it's a tough road in, in you know repurposing. Sure. It's a hard thing to make money on. But you know, it actually had a clinical trial essentially in. Uh, Africa a couple of years ago when they were having the Ebola uh, outbreak and the, the data suggests very very strongly that they save lives so you know it, it's just like, I mean you know yeah hopefully we'll make some money on it as, a, as an institution and royalties and all those kind of things but again you know if you save save lives that that's you, you can go home and say you've done done really well. the other thing we, we, we do and we continue to do uh, is we have one faculty member who is a um, uh, she's the chief scientific officer for a startup company that she's part of, and they fund a research, part of a research. We again strongly encourage those kind of things. It's, it's complicated, but one of the one of the really intriguing things, by the way, that that I, <laughs> back to the history when when I met uh, all of you guys uh, in, in that way back in in 2003, uh, was that flexibility to say, yeah, we are willing to take those chances, work with it, have faculty really sort of. Because that was not the attitude at the very, very large state university where I was employed, shall we say. They were all scared to death. Every one of their tech transfer people, I will say this because I've said it publicly enough now, um, was scared to death of messing up Gatorade. Okay? Yeah. Because they didn't have... It's the money it. train. <laughs> it's, well, we don't want to mess it up, so you can't start a company because we might mess up. And I had some people there tell me, wouldn't I? We would much rather have the faculty just do their do their teaching and write grants and not start companies. And the attitude was 180 degrees on the other side. Here is well, what can we do to help these folks start companies? David's companies, several companies, uh, you know, David Gallus's companies, you know, and and by the way, they have provided provided uh, uh, resources uh, out of uh, the the work that um, uh, uh, Jim Craig did with with uh, uh, Alder. I think I got the yeah, that right. Alder biopharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, so that that was really an important consideration for me at that time. Mm -hmm. Thinking back about it, was how can you? I mean, look, tech transfer obviously has challenges, right? You you have to protect institution, you have to protect all kinds of stuff, intellectual property. Uh, you know, those those things are complex. But at the end of the day, it's pretty exciting. And for what we do as an institution, nothing is more to the point than having faculty who are really entrepreneurial and want to get. Want to start these companies? 
So I think that was a key feature of the of the uh, the attitude at the beginning was how do we do more of this kind of stuff? And that was part of Hank's original inspiration, right? Was here are the human genomes being decoded. We've got a whole new sector that's going to be exploding. We we need people who can understand and speak to both sides of things. Um, Shelley, when you, how soon after you arrived in 2003, did you sort of, did it become clear to you that KGI was going to need to expand its array of programs if it was going to thrive as an institution? And then how, how did, I know you obviously also, Jim, were very heavily involved in the early days of that. How did you go out about determining what were going to be the, the logical things to add to, to the MBS degree? <laughs> I wish we could say we sat down and thought this out really carefully and thoughtfully, but I think, Jim, we would have to be crossing our fingers if we, if we said it that way. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't have a uh, seven-page guide on how to start new programs. How to start new master's programs and yeah. graduate level programs in the 21st century in a new industry. Yeah, that, that guide hadn't been published quite yet. Right. <laughs> but I hope, David, you're going to publish that. <laughs> well, you yeah. guys seem to have figured it out, so. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure we get style points, but, but we, we're doing pretty well. Yeah. My recollection is, this could be wrong, Jim. You, jump in and tell me if I'm You know, uh, Ian Phillips, uh, one of our faculty, one of our senior faculty, was always intrigued by helping students get to medical school. And it is my recollection, tell me if it's wrong, Jim, because I don't, I don't remember the years on this. But he, he came in and he said, you know, we are getting so many of our MBS students who, when they, when they really, when they talk, they really want to go to medical school. Why don't we start a program for that? I think we should, we have to go back and verify this, but you know, given, given my aged memory, I think we started the, the, the post-baccalaureate pre-medical certificate, the PPC program, really. And we started that. Eight students applied and we thought, well, that's kind of cool. Let's keep that going and see what it does. And, you know, it's it's been up in the 70s and 80s students coming in and 80, 85% of the students go on to medical school. Because, and, and I think what the, the learning from this was not just that there are students wanting to do this kind of thing, but it's doing something different. We can, we can create the background for a young physician that has this other stuff that is, that is, it's the business, it's the management, it's understanding that medicine has a context. It's not the Dr. Weldy model. It's, it's, it's far more complex and there's way, there are way more opportunities. And I know these students get involved in team master's projects. They think about clinical trials. They think about regulatory issues. They think about, gosh, if I had this new device that did this, whatever it might be, uh, I could go to the folks in the device program and, and think about that. You know, how come I can't do this diagnostic in my office? You know, those, those kind of things. So it, 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 it sort of taught us. Uh, it sort of taught us, that, gee, there really are these, these whole lot of other areas that kind of add and build and, and fill in the MBS concept. Uh, and, I, I, you know, it was important. The other thing that I think was, was very early on, uh, when I came here, it had been right after I had an experience in Florida where I had, raised, I had gotten the money from the legislature to start a bioprocessing program in Florida. And I wanted it to be educationally based. I left. They did whatever they're going to do with it. We won't, we won't look back at that. But when I got here, I thought one of the first things we needed to do was talk to Amgen about bioprocessing and production. Dennis was very encouraging of it at the time, and obviously we did that. So we started adding early on to 
for that. It started as a as a as a program within the MBS, and it still is, but now it's its own uh, engineering and bioprocessing degree because the need again has been explosive. Um, so you know, I think it came came kind of in 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 bits and starts. And what year, Jim? Do you remember when did we have the PPM discussion? Because that was one of the really earliest. Started, I think we started around 2007, 2008. Okay. okay. Because I think we already had the PPC. Had the PPC. We right. had a That's guy right. named. We had the PPC. That's right. We had a guy here named Chatham. Oh really? yeah. 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 That yeah. was the key, Chatham. Yes. Yeah, that was the key. Absolutely right. Yeah. So yeah, we did. I forgot about that. And, yeah. and he had said, you know, we have our post uh, post baccalaureate pre medical certificate. Let's add something that sounds the same, but it's for postdocs. And so that's when we started talking about the PPM. So we had a PPC and a PPM for a while. PPM didn't pan out to be sort of what we ex expected. Um, but the PPC, based on Ian Phillips' input and getting that going first, I think that was I five think, or yeah. six, yeah, 2005 or right. it, it was early, but yeah, you're right. I think that was, that was before, the, before the PPM. And, and so... They were successful, and they broadened us as an institution. We learned from these experiences. I mean, I think the PPM as well. I would, I would say again, paint anything as a success, but I think we learned a bunch from it. Yeah. My, so, we, with the pre-medical, it was also on the. It, it. I think it's a great strategy for getting students into medical school, and if they don't make it, they have something they have else. In their, they have yes. a career. Yeah. And so that was. That was a, a really effective way of recruiting students who didn't know anything, but yeah. my parents want me to be a doctor, and so I'm going to be a doctor. And they were pre-meds in college, and then they weren't sure what to do. So it was an effective recruiting tool, and it did provide a, a stream of students into our MBS program. Who They'd finish the certificate in one year, and then they'd spend another year and finish, yeah, and finish yeah. Our, yeah. our MBS. The PPM was a different program that we we looked out at the world of, of PhDs and how do they make it into the companies that we have as corporate partners. And at the time, and it's, it continues in many places to, to, until today, where the PhDs are in an environment where they're trained, educated to be professors. To re replicate their supervisor. Replicate their supervisor. Absolutely. And, and so we wanted to address that, and we didn't do much marketing. We talked to employers to some extent. We did some, Shelly and I went and visited our corporate partners. We yeah. sat down in front of them and said, would you hire these postdocs if they got our business courses? Mm -hmm. And so we designed a one-year, what was actually a master's degree. And yep. we added, it was accredited. It was uh, you know full master's degree that they could do uh, within a year. But they would get the capstone projects. So that boosted the, the level of scientific discourse on our team master's yes, projects. Yes. So our it helped. In, yeah, it was really interesting. It was a great add-on. Yeah. And, and we graduated about 100 of those students who went out into industry and have done great things. Mm -hmm. And they still they still confer with each other. We just have we, we discontinued uh, the program. The, the acquisition cost of a, of a postdoc for that program, I think, if, if we could have quantified that acquisition cost, it would have been exorbitant. <laughs> yeah. So it was it was just to get the cohort. It was just taking too much money effort to to, to get the students working. Piece of that is, yeah. I mean, yeah, yes, that, whatever. I think that was only the bottom line, especially for a one-year program. But when you sort of think about it, 
you're, you're now recruiting. I mean, I, I mean, I think one of the things that we are, I think, starting to address is, you know, we sort of only take, I mean, our world of recruiting is really only about, what, 15, 18% of the graduates of college because we want science degrees or science backgrounds. So, okay, we've cut out a whole lot of, a lot of students into that. And now we're taking PhD graduates. Okay, well, <laughs> really, and, and in the life sciences, by the way, and you know, and and so and and uh, so there was a, a a you know, I mean, the market became really really tiny in a weird way. Uh, that that was one of the problems. The other thing is, I think to, to Jim Jim brought up the point: these the, the students in PhD programs are really socialized that, that gee, if you leave academia, you are giving up doing science. Which I think is a real disservice to the students. I mean, I, I think it, it really ignores, to their detriment, these enormous opportunities and contexts where no, you need to have that science. You need to have been a scientist to know what it's like to run gee, clinical trials, to understand regulatory affairs, to do production and operations. And so, so I, I think that's the kind of thing we, we had to fight, and it just uh, it was just too big a battle. I was curious in in that model because because I, th- I would assume one of the other challenges with it is that um, you know these postdocs typically they you know average seven years to finish their PhD then they're doing several years of postdoc they're never earning a lot during any of that by then they often right. have a family so affording to invest in another year did did you ever have a model for it where if Amgen just hired those folks. That they would send them for a year or two part time to do it because they needed to help with that transition. We we looked at that. We we tried a couple programs like that. The problem with all of those uh, is you know when you when you get somebody who's working for you, you don't want them to unwork for you. Or you want them to do what they're, they're they're doing and doing. So you know there there may there may still be actually some opportunities. I think in the in you know the fully professional online parts of these kind of things. I think that actually is a possibility. I think that's something we should. Yeah, I think those would have to be distance or hybrid learning, not not that they could do a full year with you. Yeah. Yeah. So so I mean, I think you, no, you you nail it, David. They, they, they you know they they've come through. You know they're 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 older. They're typically gosh gee thirty even. I mean oh, that 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 advanced age. Uh, you know, or thirty early thirties. They have families. They have you know they have. Uh, all obligations already and, and location restrictions from, from a spouse or a family or children or whatever it might be. So coming to Claremont for a year of, 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 of hands-on uh, you know, residential education was just too big. But I do think the, the education was extraordinarily valuable for them, and the graduates have done very, very well. Yeah. And I, don't, I think I do believe we have 100% employment of those graduates within a couple months of graduation. I think that's, that's that, was, that went. It was, uh, yeah, it was very successful in that regard. Uh, and the other thing was, most of them came from an environment where they had, they were paid to go to graduate school. Sure. And their question was very often, well, who's going to pay for this? Right. Now you're starting a discussion because the answer is that you are. Yeah. That's, that that okay. So now you have a discussion. Yeah. It, it was just. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, but I, I think doing it as the professional thing for yeah. PhDs. That's got some. Uh, that's got. I mean, look, they do MBAs all over the place, right? Sure. So it would, in some ways, have to compete with with those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, while you're working in a company, you probably kind of get enough experience working in a team, so that that doesn't need to be done. So I think there's some opportunities there. Well, uh, you know, we, we so, do have programs in in India it, with right. Biocon that are obviously completely online, 
and it, it's it's it, I mean, we have a program for for you know, uh, very early students. It's been extraordinarily successful, and we are looking towards how to do the professionals. And actually, we're we are we are uh, um, accredited for giving an MBA in India. We just have been delayed to start it because of COVID. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the BioCon Academy. How how did that program come about, and how does it work? <laughs> um, Kiran Mazumdar Shah, uh, who's our, our trustee and is the, the founder and CEO of BioCon, uh, has has been interested in how to raise the level of the undergraduate graduates, the, the BS or, or BSM, or, or the, I guess they're called, what are they called? There, there's BS in India and there's a BS, I want to say BSM, but I don't, I, I may, may, anyway, there, there's those there's those graduates. She wanted to give them the skills because they didn't come out knowing enough and knowing enough about the industry uh, to, to really be, be all that helpful in the company. They had to spend a lot of time with training and it was a, it was a big obligation. Uh, at the same time, this was actually when we, we built, we started our relationship with the Minerva School. Mm-hmm. And we were really learning a great deal about, um, you know, online education and what it could be. And that it didn't have to be the, you know, the old model of, you know, all these recorded lectures that nobody really listened to and stuff like that. You could very effectively do active, engaged learning using online technology. Because they were getting, the technologies were getting better and, you know, all those kind of things uh, were, were, were converging to, Create these kind of opportunities. So she wanted. She, I remember she called it a finishing school. She said, "Could we put something together that's more like a finishing school, very heavily based on what what Minerva is doing?" Because she was intrigued by that as well. So we had discussions, and we came. So she had started the academy, which was going to start building educational programs, and was was her and the, the company's uh, charitable uh, uh, obligation or, or commitment. And uh, and so so we started that program. I think I want to say we started in. I have a plaque. I think it says yeah. I have a plaque that when we started. Yeah. We did a ribbon cutting, a virtual ribbon cutting, and and, and she and and uh, John were in our house uh, here in Claremont, and the folks in India were. Anyway, it was kind of cool. We had a, a fun time doing that ribbon cutting. I want to say it's been. It was in thirteen. Was it? I think it was in thirteen or fourteen. So we set up. We set up a program whereas our faculty would teach online in the evenings to a cohort of about 30 students in India who would be there in the mornings because of the 12, 12 and a half hour time difference. Uh, and we would do all of the didactic work and they would then have afternoons in the academy. They could go around BioCon. They would bring them to other companies. They would have more, more hands-on experiences. We have now completed... Our, I could be messing up the number, but I think we have completed 20, what they're calling batches. So 20, 20 cohorts in a four-month program of 30 students each, uh, and that's uh, 600 graduates. If I do my arithmetic real quickly, I will apologize in advance for using a double negative, but we've never had a student graduate without a job. That's awesome. Not a one. And not all at Biocon, by the way. A lot of companies in India are, are, are recruiting these students, hiring these students. Uh, because the, the need is incredible. And what we, again, we learn from these kind of things. Part of it is, you know, we learn how to, how to, how to do this thing over, over a, a time distance. Um, but the, the educational experience of most, Indus, of most Indian students is, is actually even more than, than what goes on in the U.S. in terms of the model of, you know, uh, I talk, you listen. Okay. And so it was very difficult at first to, to, to have our, our faculty and the students kind of get, get it will or how, how do we bridge this gap of the you know I am here to listen and, and our faculty who are now really getting more into 
let's talk, let's discuss, let's ask ask questions, or and I'll ask you questions. But we've been able to do that, and it's, it has gotten easier, uh, and it, it's gotten better, and it's gotten more effective. Uh, so th- that is that has been an incredibly successful program. Uh, we, I can say we celebrate. I, th- I think it was our twentieth cohort or something like remember like that. A great time. Uh, I usually try to go out once a year to the to the graduation ceremonies. They have a, an annual graduation for the various various cohorts. Uh, haven't been there for a while, but I, I'm looking forward to going back. Um, because they're just really happy with the experience and the outcome of those of those programs. Mm-hmm. So we are we we have uh, Steve Casper has worked out a whole math, an MBA program uh, for them, and what we're doing that's a little bit different from the, the BioCon Academy approach is uh, for things that are that have sort of the Indian component because Indian accounting is slightly mm-hmm. different. Than the, so we're actually having a local a local um, partner teach those mm-hmm. courses, and then we do we do the other stuff. Great. It's really been, again, a, a fun experience. Yeah. Well, I'd like to come back to the Minerva platform and experience yeah. that underlay that. But before we do, I wanted to talk about the progression of new programs. So you, you described you know, that first phase, which were really kind of natural offshoots, outgrowths of the MBS. You had bioprocessing. You tried the, the management or the pre-med you, you added ones around uh, translational medicine, around human genetics. But then the next phase, which I know some of them are still in the works, um, is a very different kind of degree. So, so you did the PharmD, that now you're adding occupational therapy and the PA program, which are both ones that we have, you know, ha- they've been real successes here at Chatham. But the hallmark of all those degrees is they're incredibly tightly circumscribed by their accrediting bodies. So they're the total opposite of what KGI initially set out to do. And so what I'm curious, as you think about the organization and succeeding at these two very different tasks, how do you manage that? How do you satisfy folks who want to make sure that you don't deviate at all from their playbook and the others who, you know, set out to just create their own whole new playbook. Great question, and it, it, it's one that really is, is is deep sort of into it. But, but I, I will say that the first big jump was the School of Pharmacy. Okay? That yep. was the first one. Okay? That, yeah, the PharmD, right, is the... PharmD. The, 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 the yep. PharmD program was the big jump. And and the reason for that was was um, a couplefold. One of them was, um, if, if you think about all of those professional... Uh, degrees, you know, as you say, OT, PA, PT, all of those kind of things, and compare them to pharmacy, pharmacy is really the only one that has the very deep science. Mm-hmm. It is the only four-year program, other than an MD, but it is the only four-year program with three years of science. And and MDs are getting way, way, you know, further, further, further from, from, from the science part. So part of the motivation was, you know, there, it, 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 if you sort of think about it, it, it actually it makes it. If, so we have a, a, a one of the uh, one of the components of our MBS program is pharmaceutical development. Well, that's not all that far off, if you will, from pharmaceutics. And gee, what do they teach in pharmacy schools? Well, they teach the pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, toxicology, clinical trials. Hmm, not all that far from a lot of the stuff that is really right. into our yep. uh, stuff we have been thinking about. So. When we started talking about it, 
it really didn't look like that big. I mean, it was a stretch. Don't 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 <laughs> let me interest, don't let me understate the fact that it it, it was really a, a difficult thing. But it was it was um, much more closely aligned with the kind of stuff that we that we do. The other piece was, and this was crucial. We went to the board and said, well, what if we had a FarmD program where the students, you know, not just, and I don't mean to underemphasize, you know, not just learn how to work in community pharmacies or clinics or whatever, but had experiences in industry. And the, the response came back enthusiastically saying, we will hire them. We need them. Okay. So the industry hired, and, and by the way, there's no better representative of that than Rutgers, by the way, right? At Rutgers, the Rutgers Farm B program is deeply embedded with, you know, all of the, the pharma the, industry. Yep. All the industry. Yep. You know, yep. it, it runs the biggest fellowship program in the yep. country, things like that. Yep. So the, the juxtaposition of a pharmacy with industry was really kind of straightforward. Right. And I, I think the argument for that, I, I really get, right? Because the other thing was most of those Farm D programs were designed before biotech had come along, right? And so, you know, infusing all that. But but OTPA, those are different creatures, right? Well, they, they are. But you got to think about it in maybe a different kind of context. And what got us into it was, um, I remember asking uh, Anna Hickerson to come up with me to to Samuel Merritt to see some of their programs. It's up in the, in the Bay Area. You know, nice school. I, I was know the president very well and and uh so we went up there and we looked at and, and this is after we had started our engineering programs and, and you know we had we had device engineering and stuff like that and i will never forget going up and looking at their ot program and 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 uh, ann and i were we, we were there at a shark tank event they were having a shark tank event with the students and i'll never forget the students one of the students came out and i said so show me your project and he pulls out his wallet i said oh Great project. Why didn't I think of that, right? And he opened it up and he said, "Well, no." He said, "I have." And he and he said, "Look, see these credit cards here. They each one of them had a, a little hole in the bottom, with with one of those little skinny bungee cords. You know, those little skinny stretchy bungee cords. And it was hooked to the to the to the uh, to the wallet." And I said, "What's that?" And he goes, "Well, I have a I have a, a, an uncle who has really bad rheumatoid arthritis, and every time he pulls out that card, he drops it, and he's embarrassed, and he can't get it, and it's on the floor." And he said, so I, I invented a solution. And Anna and I both said, can you imagine if those students were working with engineering students? I mean, again, the, the bungee cord is not, you know, it's not the, the, the new, you know, sight or hearing, whatever it is. But, but just, and, and at the time we had one person who was working here who had, who actually had, had, who had had a great deal of surgery and was having a hard time opening the windows at her house. Well, there's an engineering solution. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not aerospace engineering, but but there are solutions to that kind of thing. And the other side of it was when we looked at the engineers, how many of them get the opportunity to go to the rehab hospital? Okay. So when we started that program, the point was to marry those two disciplines. And as, as in fact, the OT director teaches in the engineering program. Our engineering students go to the rehab, or they did go before COVID. They, they had to go for, well, I think it's two semesters, one or two semesters, I don't know what it is, to, the, to, to Casa Colina uh, or to the rehab at Pomona Valley Hospital Medical Center to be a volunteer. To, to, and, so, 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 and the OT students are going to be doing projects with the engineering students. So putting together things in unique kinds of ways is what the really 
interesting opportunity is. And I think that's, that, I mean, certainly for OT, that is, that is the one. The other, the other piece of that is, I mean, I, I, I was totally naive about what OTs do. I mean, I thought it had to do with work. Well, it kind of does, but it's also whatever occupies your time. And that actually has a, a really strong relationship with a lot of other things that we do as an institution in terms of, uh, well, how do you, if, if you want people to, to participate in certain kinds of things, what, what, what might they have to be uh, acclimated to or taught about? And the other piece, which I did not know, and it has really come to the fore in the last <laughs> 17 and a half months, OTs provide enormous service for students. How do you solve a practical problem of I can't study? That's what OTs, that's that's the training of OTs. So, so, the, so the, the relationship of those kind of things is not that distant. The other piece, so we'll talk about like genetic counseling. That was another one that, that, that you, know, is, you know, someone might look at it and say, gee, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it turns out that was actually funded by, by Amgen, by the Amgen Foundation, by the way, for the very reason that they know that the future of them getting new medicines is genetics. So this was, again, I, I, it was a charitable contribution. They get nothing out of this. We don't owe them anything else. So I want to make sure that they're 501c3 status. <laughs> but they, they have no role in our curriculum design or anything like that. However, they know because their last big drug came from a genetic analysis. They know that their new drug targets come from genetics. And they needed, they needed people who were trained in that area. They needed people who understood it. They needed people who could, who could do the the clinical trials, by the way, which are going to be genetic based as well. And the other piece of uh, the other piece of putting that together is the pharmacogenomics. I, I think I, I, I want to say about a third to 40 percent now of new drugs going through the FDA have a genetic test affiliated with. Them. So to me, that fit very closely. And and again, it's sort of this thing, OK, we, we you know, again, the, the fun part of being at KGI is, you know, I mean, one of my I've never seen an idea I didn't like. Right. You know, and half the ideas that I come up with are, are well, 90% are stupid, then I'm okay with that. But but sometimes we come up with good ones. And, and when we started the genetic counseling program, we said, well, we also need people who can do the analytics. Well, that is our stuff. That's the kind of thing we do. Okay, We teach people how to take data. and do it. So we started the genome analytics program. And it is one of one, of one in, the, in the country. And it's actually doing quite well. And I will say... Uh, again, it, it, but there's a lot of overlap with the teaching and the genetic counseling program. They take a bunch of courses together, and and <laughs> we only had a, a four real graduation one time, which was this last May. So we graduated, I think, two classes of that program at the same time. But every single one of those graduates had a job and that day of graduation in industry. So the the yeah, and, but but I, but to your point of the the uh, the accrediting. Um, I, I, all I can call it is a headache. I, I don't know what else to tell you. Um, and what accrediting often is, it's a guild. You can call it all kinds of different things, but the fact of the matter is, it is one way that some of these professions are designed to keep out competition. So, I mean, you you know it, David. I mean, they'll say, so you have to hire all of the faculty who are going to teach in the program two years before the first student shows up. That's a hurdle. That's all it is. I mean, there's no educationally valid reason for saying it, it takes two years to develop a course. Really? Wow. You need to work, you need to work a little harder, right? I mean, <laughs> these, are, these are hurdles. Um, but, okay, you, you, you just deal with them, and, and that means, okay, you, you, just, you just have to shoot that down. 
and, and by the way, we are also we also push the edges. Uh, and I will say that the of, of what the accreditors will allow, won't allow. I, you may not know this, but when we actually went for accreditation of the pharmacy school, we actually wanted to accredit a school. We called it a school of biopharmacy, and the accrediting agency, the AACP, rejected it. They said we don't accredit schools of biopharmacy. We we accredit schools of pharmacy. We love your curriculum; it looks great. But we only and so so we said, oh oh excuse me, I I, I miswrote the title. It's pharmacy. I, I just that that wasn't a hill we wanted to die. But just but that's to your point. That's the level of the rigidity of some of this accreditation. We don't accredit schools of biopharmacy. Okay, fine. You, you can see the theme here, David. That yeah. looking for adjacencies. Absolutely, um, Jim. Yep. In the programs we have, where there is overlap of the Venn diagrams of, of the programs, so that we can leverage what we have, and that's really what all of, all of the innovation that, that Shelley's brought is, is really about. Yeah. That. Yeah. So, so can I ask? You alluded to Minerva earlier, so that's one where the the adjacencies weren't quite so apparent, I would guess, when it was first starting, right? So I'm going to be talking with with Ben Nelson, their founder, next week on the podcast. But but I'm I'm curious. You were both involved in that the early stages of that partnership. How did it come about? I mean, here it was a an undergrad institution that was basically saying, you know, we want to create a degree the quality of Harvard for 10,000 bucks uh, that's all over the world didn't immediately see a lot of synergies with you know a graduate only life science program so how, how did you all first come together and 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 how has it evolved in terms of, of what what KGI has gotten from the relationship you want to take a first shot or you want me to take a first shot Jim <laughs> I mean we were both obviously deeply involved Jim, Jim but, you know it, uh, let me just launch it by saying it came because Terry Cannon, whom I've known a long time from being on the WASC commission, and she was at WASC uh, at, for a long time, um, and is now the president of, 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 of Minerva University, um, we are proud to say. She came looking for partners with, she and Ben came looking for partners. And, and but again, I want to point out from the beginning, this was not a financial arrangement. We made no money out of this relationship. So I want everybody to understand that. We did this because we wanted to incubate a new institution. Okay? Because people may have forgotten that we were incubated under CGU. Our first degrees were not KGI degrees. They were CGU degrees. Okay? Because that's how accreditation works in, in, in WASC. So if we wanted to be accredited, we had to do it under CGU, and they didn't make any money. You know, it was just, it was just you do it because we told each other what to do. So they wanted someone to, to incubate them as an institution, and we got into this fascinating discussion, which took a long time. It was very complex. It was, uh, it was not easy. I, how do you? I, I can tell a story of how we, how we, the, the first meeting we had. But what are your original thoughts? Well, I, I remember that you know Ben, Ben and Terry. And did Bob Carey? He was involved early. He was involved on, oh, very early. On. Very early. Oh, yeah. On. yeah. They they came. They 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 were making a road trip around the country, visiting institutions that might help incubate them under their accreditation. And they visited Ivy Leagues. They visited the Claremont Colleges. And when they came to the Claremont Colleges, Shelley and I were there for their first presentation. And it, you know, I was sort of kind of shocked 
um, at, at this idea, but I can remember when Hank Riggs and Bonnie moved from across the street from Harvey Mudd to CGU, and they set their offices up at CGU before we got the properties out there. So this idea of incubating with an existing institution uh, has existed for a long time, and, and we were familiar with it. So even though I was kind of surprised at the model uh, of, you know, students live in dorms, but they're taking classes using their computers in real time, um, no classrooms, no ID, no ID covered walls are needed in this Minerva model, and that's why they can offer the, the uh, tuition at a lower cost. Uh, I was really intrigued, and I think the thing that got me most interested was the claim that I was interested in exploring, which was, we can do this online with technology, with, with learning outcomes, um, assessment, um, sophisticated assessment, so we know whether this works or not. And w our claim is that we're going to be able to do better than in person. Now, I don't know if that data has comes really shows that that's true. Certainly, after all the Zoom fatigue we've we've felt, um, we might not think that in person is worse than uh, than, in, than online. But their claim originally was that we we will have this technology. And I think KGI benefited in a, an amazing way by having done Minerva coursework. We had access, and we had a lot of some of our courses on the Minerva platform, uh, and I taught on it for several years. And actually, even last year, I, I, I was teaching on the Minerva platform. Turns out that Zoom became so um, sort of standard, yeah, the, the standard use, yeah. that it's yeah. that yeah. we all ended up using Zoom uh, thereafter. But the, the that Minerva experience was was really remarkable, and the relationship um, helped us get into the online modality in a way that the transition that we had was just so smooth so and smooth. straightforward. It was really exactly. March, March yeah. of that. March, March 13th was that Friday. I remember it was Friday the 13th when we met as a faculty. So it had to be that. It was literally, we were off that next week. That was the week of, of spring break. So that, that whatever, mm -hmm. nine days from whatever it is. We just boom, did we it. Just, we, just, we just nailed it. We were just on and up and doing it. Uh, we were using Zoom or, 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 or the Minerva, depending on what, what faculty wanted to do or comfortable with. It, it was it was a fascinating experience. And, um, you know, Ben is quite the entrepreneur. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he oversold it, of course, because that's Ben. That's what entrepreneurs do, right? <laughs> you know, but, but what he did is he really brought the power to it. Between Terry and Steve Coslin, who was the, the, the designer of the program and, and the, 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 uh, the, the real uh, thoughtful, I mean, he, he, was, the, he was the dean, uh, or whatever it was at, at the time of the beginning, putting those courses together, who was is, who is re really, really knowledgeable in this area and tireless in terms of, of working and demanding excellence. To, to Jim's point, I mean, the, the, the analytical tools are, are better than anything anyone's ever seen. Uh, They're just staggeringly good about testing the students. Uh, and it was a completely new experience. And it, and it really, it, it takes a long time. I mean, I know you're going to be shocked at this. To make changes in academia, 
it takes time. I mean, you, you know, and sometimes you got to do it one funeral at a time. You know, that's kind of the time frame of change. Uh, but 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 this this was a this was a, a bandaid ripping. You know, and and how do you do it inexpensively globally? Uh, and part of the thing that they had they had started, I, I think they're still doing this. You know, the, the cohort would go to a different country after the first year. They'd go every semester to a different country because the technology, you know, it broke the the, uh, the, the requirement that you be physically all you know, in the same country. I mean, it, it really did provide some fascinating experiences for those students. And it opened us up to how do you do active learning in a very serious and thoughtful way? Because, the, the, the you know, I mentioned before how we know the science of learning is very clear about what a better way to learn than, than listening to a lecture is. I think that's a sentence. Anyway, you get the point. It, it, right? I mean, listening to a lecture is a dreadful way to learn. It may be a good way to teach, but it's not a good way to learn. You have to be engaged and involved, and you have to put other parts of your brain. And there, there are times when a lecture is the right thing, but it's usually a brief lecture, short, focused, to the point, and then your brain has to go do, do other stuff. They, they, they really, I think, raise this to a, to a fine point as, as the Minerva. The, the very idea of having the platform allow ease facility with breakout groups, mm -hmm. they, they mastered that from the beginning. Now, since Zoom does it so well, now we, can, we all just it. use Zoom. But, but that idea was very novel when they, when they developed that platform. And you, you'll ask Ben about this next week, I suppose. But that, that whole design of that platform was um, very well done. And they put a lot of money into the development of the platform. Mm -hmm. And we learned so much from it. Yeah, so we really I, did. Oh, go ahead, David. I'm sorry. So I, I wanted to ask you about, you know, uh, obviously there's a whole series of successes and, and growth there, but but you've now taken on the biggest one yet in the history of the institution, this five-year, over $150 million project to create a new school of medicine. You, you, you've you lured the head of Kaiser Permanente to come run it. So you know that's a, that's a fascinating bet for you know KGI has grown a lot but this is a a huge additional undertaking how did that come about and where does it now stand in its development um how did it come about you know it, i i think we we had had discussions uh with some other startup medical schools yeah. let's say 6 7 years ago kaiser was the first of the kaiser medical school uh we basically we, we basically gave them a tutorial on how to do this education. They literally came here. We taught them how to do it. Uh, we taught them how to do online and real and, and active learning. Uh, they were sitting here taking, taking pictures of our slides. Uh, and because we had thought originally that, gee, there may, be a, there may be a possibility for us. For example, gee, maybe we could do the first two years of a medical school. And you do the other years because you've got essentially infinite clinical facilities at Kaiser. Wouldn't that be a great way to do it? And I remember when the, when the folks came over here, we actually made up stationery, which said that like the KGI Kaiser, the Kaiser KGI School of Medicine. We thought that would make that would be the, the, the best best way to do it. And um, let's just say that didn't work out. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll let it go at that for the for the moment for for, for lots of different kinds of reasons. But um, you know whatever they basically decided they want to do it on their own, and you know they do have infinite resources, so they can they can do it. And I'm sure they're doing it very well. Uh, and then, then we met with some folks who were starting the medical school in uh, Colton, uh, CalMed. Remember that meeting? And uh, we had talked with those guys. And 
they sent some folks over to, to talk about how we could work together. They, they really only wanted us to be involved in their research. Remember those meetings? And I remember, <laughs> and I remember their people walking out, and I remember standing there with our faculty, and the faculty said, holy moly, we can do this. We can do this. Remember that? I mean, I just remember that. And that sort of started the thing. That had, that had to be 10 years ago. I don't, I don't remember the specifics of when that happened. We, we can do this. We actually can do this kind of thing. So the, so the thoughts kind of, kind of, kind of noodled and, 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 uh, and came up. Well, so, so we, we did. We, we sort of started on the, the concept of how do we do it differently? Because, again, we don't, there's no point trying to compete with the 140 medical schools that are there because they're, they're, they're good. Uh, they're obviously well-resourced well all. Um, and, and, you know, but, but gee, should we, should we go toward an area where, I mean, there's a, there's a shortage of physicians, for example, who, who know how to run clinical trials. Very, very few have any understanding of the business of science, the, the business, you know, of the biosciences. And then we thought, well, you know, again, and you can come either way you want to go. Well, what about, what about more in terms of family practice, using the tools we have, the, the, the other kind of stuff to, to, to get involved with that. And so we sort of batted that kind of stuff as well. And then, and so then, then we, we got Dave Lawrence as the as the, the founding dean to start this. We got some initial funding to, to do a feasibility study. And you know, feasibility studies, yeah, you can do it. I mean, there's a need, right? There's no question. There's a need. I mean, you've got so many applicants for medical school. Of course, there's a need. And 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 by the way, and if I mean, there are now for-profit medical schools. And if there are for-profit medical schools, I posit they can make a profit. Last I checked, those kind of two things went together. Okay. Is that the right thing to do? Different discussion. I have a, I have a, I have a, I have an ethical problem with for-profit education, but that's my problem. <laughs> anyway, but financially, you know, they can work. Now, again, there are huge complexities, and as you say, the, the accreditation is. I mean, it's it's not a mountain. It's a whatever, a, a mega mountain. Or something like that. Well, the pandemic hit, and what have we learned from the pandemic? One of the things we've learned is, is, is. First off, our public health infrastructure is really bad. Okay? If we learn anything from it, that's that's got to be the thing. The other thing that is that was was painfully apparent, even from the, the earliest parts of the pandemic, is what goes on in some of the, the communities of need and communities of risk was far worse than for the for the, for the rest of us who have, you know, the ability to make a living. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have to go work in a grocery store. I didn't have to go work in the Amazon. Place to, you know, delivered my box of everything I wanted whenever I wanted it. Uh, you know, I didn't have to be the guy that picked up the trash. You know, going out and, and you know, I, we didn't have that privilege. I mean, we didn't have that. That I mean, they did not have the privilege that we had. So what we what we said was okay. So that was one factor as we started thinking about this. And actually, this we actually had these discussions before the pandemic, but they really got nailed as we got into the pandemic. And, and we said, so, so can, and, you know, and, and Dave, you know, we originally started, how do we do family practice? What do we really need to do in family practice? We, we kept on with that. Kind of thing. Then the other thing we, 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 we looked at, so where do, where do really good, where are people who are going to work in the communities come from? Well, they come from the communities. Well, the fact of the matter is, I think it's 3% of all medical school applicants in the United States come from UCLA. And do you know how many medical school students come from the Cal States? Which have 480,000 students, the number is 50 a year, roughly. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just, 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 well, and the Cal States are, are, 
you know, they're, they're 70 some percent first generation, 70% underrepresented minority. I might have the numbers a little bit wrong, but not much. Okay. Well, those kids are just as bright as anybody else. You're going to try to tell me that out of 480 students, you couldn't get 100 students to go to medical school or 1,000? I mean, give me a break. It's not that small. So, 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 and, 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 but the question is, are they prepared the same way? Well, if you measure prepared by MCAT scores, no way. Okay. But what happens, we know what MCAT scores can do because we give an MCAT prep course which increases your MCAT score. So it's not a measure of your intellect. It's a measure of your preparation. And so we got together with the Cal States. And uh, Tim White, who was the chancellor at the, at the time, uh, is, was a friend, is a friend, uh, now a board member. Uh, and we had these discussions. We said, look, what would happen if we worked with you? And first off, we said, we want to be your medical school. We want to be the medical school that takes Cal State students. But after we got into it, we said, we can have more impact by training young people to have the skills, the ability, and the background and come from the communities to go into a bunch of medical schools. And by the way, we have some experience with master's degrees. Okay, So is that where we should put our effort right now? And that's where we're putting our effort. So starting the medical school is really going to be put on. Okay. Okay, that's not public yet, but we're... It, it, so, I mean, it's not to say we, we, we shouldn't do it or don't do it. But, you know, it's one of those things... Because we, we know we've talked to all the donors and everything like that, and and, and you know and and so one of the major donors for this to get it started, well, he wants to remain anonymous. But when we talked to him about this, he said, "Well, look," he said, "when you start an experiment, you don't just go off, you know, pig-headed and go to the end of the experiment if the data is telling you to go somewhere else first, right? Because you know you go with that one and see where that goes." So we started a master's in community medicine. It's WASC accredited. We don't have those accreditation hurdles. <laughs> that, that, that OT and PA and all that, you know, it's it's what we want to do. It, it is 100% based on the Minerva model. So have we benefited from the Minerva model? Uh-huh. Yeah, I would say that's that's a direct benefit. And we are, we are trying to use that as the pipeline. So it has two tracks. One of them is, you know, again, the, the traditional track that we have working. I mean, not working. I mean, that's the wrong word. I mean, employment in the industry and in community things, and in hospitals, and FQHCs, and places that that, 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 that want to do want to do you know community medicine practice, but also there's a track where students will, will basically get prepped in the science and get more of the background and preparation to apply to medical school. So we have a council of medical school deans, which are very very interested in having these young people. Uh, we have donors who have made it so that the first class is completely free, so we can test it and figure out how it works. But here's why it fits in some ways. First off, the, the need the need is gigantic. There's no there's no question about that. And and that's but what we but 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 why is it different than for example a public health degree? And the reason is because of the practical approach that we have. It's it's all well and good to identify the the communities of need. It's a, it's all well and good to identify what the problems are. But how do you solve? And you know what? It's a whole lot like, you know, what we have said from the very beginning, David, that you, you ain't going to get a drug to market without business. You're not going to solve these community problems without business and management and the same kinds of things we bring together. Because the problems, a huge part of the problem, it's not medical. It's other stuff. I mean, we talk about food deserts. We talk about places where the only where the only store in the, in the neighborhood is, a, you know, is a payday loan place in a liquor store. That's a business problem. 
that's not a medical problem. I mean, it contributes to the medical problems. And that's where we have the special sauce that we can put together. The other reason why I find this so intriguing, and again, it came from, it's sort of a back and forth what we learned from the Minerva, Minerva project as well. And that is, so this is all going to be taught using active, uh, active but the, essentially the Minerva platform, although we're using it, it's Zoom, Zoom based, it's, it's Steve Kostlin. Um, but I think there are some courses that are in this, or, or derivatives, of course, so we can teach to all of our students, right? I mean, I, you know, wh wh why not? And the other thing, what this does is it expands our reach. It extends our reach for all kinds of these kind of programs. So now we can go back and think about this PPM thing and think, hmm, maybe there's a way to do that using a new technology and come back and, um, you know, even getting into new communities or new kinds of folks or new... Gee, a new market, and guess what? Hospitals are bioscience businesses these days, right? They have laboratories, they have clinical trial places, right? They have genetic counselors, they have all the kind of stuff that we do. They are desperate to figure out how to do pharmacogenomics in hospitals and those and, 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 uh, and, and medical practices. Well, how does this not all come together? That is a very long-winded answer to what you said. So are we going to still do the medical school? The answer is probably not. Not in the... Not in the, not in the uh, I, Use my term for foreseeable future because the future is not foreseeable. But for the for the near future, we're putting that to rest. What we're going to be doing is incorporating the, the masters of science and community medicine in our school of, in our in our educational program, mm -hmm. integrating it as much as we possibly can. Because I think there's synergy there. Can our can our OT students learn from what's going on in the community? Well, my God, if they can't, who could? Okay. Same thing with our PAs. Can they learn by what's going on in the community? Can they contribute to it? So we're actually working with, with actually with the City of Hope. Uh, they are, they are we, are, we have a lot of, we have a lot of you know, relationships with them and, and programs, but they just got a grant for a, uh, one of those big band things that go out in the communities. And it's going to be, it's going to be manned or personed or by our, by our faculty and students in, in PA and OT uh, and general council going to make extensive band, but those kind of, and community medicine. Gee, you really ought to, if you're going to do if you're going to take these OT things and find out what the people need, maybe you need maybe you need to be in the community. Mm -hmm. So there's such a, an amazing, interesting theme here that you know we're talking about adjacencies and adjacent programs and how how that works. Every time we do this, we we run the risk that we cannibalize the existing yes. thing a little bit. Yep. So when, you know when we when we did, we did the, um, so we have the PPC, which is a certificate to get students into medical school. And there's no doubt that some of the students coming into this new master's want to go to medical school eventually. And so perhaps they would have been in our PPC before. The same thing happened way back when, when we decided to start the separate image in bioprocessing. Because we had a bioprocessing focus area in our MBS program. And it did cannibalize that to some extent. Mm -hmm. The numbers going forward yeah. in the MBS track have, well, all, have been smaller, yeah. but then they've grown a bit too. So there's always a possibility of kind of, it gives you a lever in some sense to try to get more students into these. Uh, into and, the I, and I'm assuming that you, you allow the merging of courses. So it's not like you treat each of these as only, oh, to, right, right. Well, no, no, it's not just allowing, it's, it's, it's insisting. Right. On, 
thing, of yeah. course. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, the consequences, we have some sections that are pretty big, that are yeah. bigger than the, than the programs. But, you know, that, that's, that's one of those uh, problems of, of, of success. No, I, I think that that is, in fact, how you can broaden the, the, uh, the education much more. And as Jim said, look, there, there is, there's always, I mean, certainly the, the, the PPC and this program, they're good, you know, are they the same? Are they different? Are they going to have the same? Well, in, in some ways, I think you, at the beginning, there is going to be some, some obvious kind of competition, but not in the long run, because in the long run, you increase the visibility of everything and you open it up to a broader, a broader constituency. I mean, we now have really deep roots. They're building deep roots into the Cal State system. And mm -hmm. remember, once you build those roots, you can say, hey, wait a minute, maybe you're not interested in medical school, but would you be interested in a business science kind of career? Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe you might be foolish enough to be an engineer. I'm sorry, engineer. You, know, you might even want to be an engineer, you know, if you don't want any future. So, you know, anyway, uh, but, yeah, but, but no, so you, you open up these other kinds of opportunities and 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 by the way, there, there's room for both. Uh, if what if the TPC is primarily focused on students who want to sort of increase their their grades, get a little bit more stuff. This is a little bit aside from that. It's a little bit different. But you know, can they all learn together? Can they all get the same advising? And absolutely. So you synergize those kinds of core activities. Uh, and you know, working with them on their interviews and their applications and that kind. Of, well, that's that's pretty similar kind of stuff. So we, we really do put those kind of things together. Uh, but you do you all you have to be careful of are we cannibalizing uh, and and uh, be aware of it. Mm -hmm. In this in this process, you you build the the network of corporate and leadership. So having Tim White on our board now. I mean, yeah. my, my gosh, the, the interactions and the synergy that can happen at the board level, yeah. I think, and, and this is something I know you think about a lot and have written on, is the, the benefits of board, you know, how do you how do you work with your board to have Cal State? Oh, no, have to have the Cal State Chancellor on, on the board, uh, who's very committed, by the way, to making sure these students have access, because they didn't. And... You know, and, and again, it's one of these things that, you know, I mean, I think we sort of started the discussion with this, David, is there's so many opportunities. Can we handle more than 60 students in the, in the industry? Well, you, you know, it, 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 when we had our, our commencement, um, uh, Bill Gruber uh, was the commencement speaker, who's the guy that ran the, the uh, and is still running the, the, uh, the vaccine program at Pfizer. Uh, it probably has some impact in the world. And uh, when I was talking with him, uh, I, I said, so, uh, you know, how many people are, are you hiring to build and produce it? He goes, well, we in the last 12 months, we've hired 1,000 people. We need 2,000 more. And he said, and how many can you help me with? And I said, well, I don't know, three, four, I don't know, six, pick a number. I mean, <laughs> it's, 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 it's ludicrous. I mean, he could hire every... Every engineering graduate we ever have, for, ever have for the next 20 years, and he still need them for a whole lot of other places. So the opportunities here are, are gigantic, and we just have to be willing to say, well, how do we how do we sort of fit into this matrix? Uh, because it is a thing, and how do we educate the students about these incredible needs? And and again, the the the, the part that's disappointing is when you go to undergraduate institutions. How many students do you see who are freshmen and say, you know, I really want a career in regulatory affairs? I mentioned that zero. <laughs> I may be wrong. There may be one, but I don't know who it is. 
they just don't know. And there's no reason they shouldn't know. They've never, they've never been told. I mean, it's not, you know, there, there's there's no TV program as good as, 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 as the chair, you know, in, in, you know, in, in, you know, in, in high tension clinical genomics or whatever, right, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, so, so I, I think we, we all have a big job, but a, an incredible opportunity to put these kind of combinations together. It looks like one of your, your real successes during COVID was the expansion of your summer programs. I, I, can you say a little about, it, it seems like they're serving a really wide range of, of different types of students. So, so how, how, how have they evolved and, and what is it that's enabled them to, to grow so significantly? Uh, I think, uh, well, first off, we, I think we, we, we made it clear to ourselves that summer is, it, it, you're, we're not in this for the revenue. It's for the exposure to the, to the new students and to, to building whatever of them need to, whatever an extra course or whatever it might be to enter the program. So it really is an incredibly powerful way to, to, get, to get a KGI experience. And the faculty have been really good about you know, having enormous programs with <laughs> huge numbers of students. But you know, they, 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 they sort no one, at least last summer, no one expected uh, to have a hands-on experience. So doing it online was, yeah, sure. What the heck, right? We don't have anything else to do, so let's do it. So we just marketed the daylights out of it. And and the other piece that I think has has been uh, a sort of an interesting thing is there's a, a large number of students at many many schools that need some kind of a research experience for their degree, and it's really hard to get it in a lot of places, right? And we opened that opportunity up for the, you know the, the the shore program and those kind of things. I mean, we had thousands of applicants for those kind of programs. And we and it has been a very very effective tool in recruiting and retention. Uh, so so it, it's just been really open the marketing up, get the word out there. We have these programs, uh, you know. We we charge an application fee of some uh, twenty dollars or something just to put a little skin in the game. But but this is not about making money. It's about getting students engaged in the KGI experience. The other piece of it is I think the word has gotten out that they're good programs, right? That I think students obviously talk with each other. And what we have done is we bring in a lot of our trustees uh, and a lot of our industry contacts to talk with the students, have sessions with the students. I mean, these are real experiences. I mean, at least as real as you can get online. Uh, and I and I think they've they've done well. So, I, Jim, I don't know what you, you you did a bunch of these. What what is your thought about uh, how they work? It's it's been a great experience for people to get exposure to KGI. The students from all over the world, and then yeah, Jim Whitaker and our board chair sits in on the final presentations of the student's summer work. And we actually shipped in the medical device engineering program, mm -hmm. we ship little Arduino kits to the students. And so they actually did some hands-on stuff at home where the, during COVID, you know, they, it was hands-on, which was a remarkable yeah, ability yeah, to do yeah. that. So yeah, we got, um, I don't know the conversion rate, but the idea really is that it, this exposure and, and turns into recruitment for, for the programs where they actually do pay tuition. Right. Um, yeah. So. No, that's 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 the coin of the realm, as, as it were. Absolutely right. No, we, we 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 really need that exposure. And you know, as you know, you you have to be you have to know about the institution for several years. You don't just jump in, you know, on the first of August and hear about it and show up in September. It's not going to happen that way. It takes a long time. And, you know, and, and, you know, we're small, but, uh, you know, but we're, we're making lots of noise. And that's, that's a piece of that noise. So it's, it's really worth the marketing effort. 
And you know, the other thing is, I'm, I'm sure you deal with it as well, is you know, how do you market to, to young people these days? Well, there's some crazy challenges because they're marketed to for everything, right? Literally everything. And how do you get above that noise? So you have to find ways to do that, that, that fit with, you know, they know they need more education, they know they need more exposure. I mean, and, and I mean, certainly what we found with like the community medicine things, they care, they want to make a difference. They really do. I mean, you can, you can, you can do a lot of bad mouthing of young people for lots of reasons, but I think the generation actually cares and wants to do things. And if, and if nothing else, I think the pandemic has taught them and, you know, in the pandemic and the, and the, and the, 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 the racial unrest, uh, I think I think has really brought it home that they got to change it. And and you know, and, and and by the way, I mean, I really think you know, they're 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 global problems that, that, that young people recognize. You know, if, if they don't if they don't think climate change is going to impact them, I don't know what, I don't know what world they're living on, but 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 not this one. So I, I and I think they're very concerned as they need to be. Uh, and you know they've they've seen their relatives and and family and friends get sick, uh, and not have a place to go. I mean the, these are problems that have been really pretty profound on a lot of on a lot of young people. So I think we we have not only an op- opportunity but we have an obligation to provide them with pathways for their career success. So Shelley, when you um, started at KGI in '03, you weren't just new to KGI, but you were the 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 young guy on the block for the presidents in the Claremont Consortium. I'm, I'm guessing, I'm guessing now you are now the, the, the senior dean, the longest served one, uh, two decades later. Um, how has the re- relationship between KGI and the other colleges in the consortium, how has it evolved over those two decades? And, and where, where does it stand today? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm laughing. Because it, it well, I mean, I think, I mean, I think we we sort of had to, to earn the respect of the other schools, uh, and I think obviously growing made a big difference. I mean, we are essentially now the size of, you know, Harvey Mudd. We're a little smaller than Pitcher, so we're now kind of, if you will, at equal. Uh, I think we were, we were. Um, well, let me back off. I mean, the, the consortium has always been supportive, so so, and, and I don't think that it, that 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 really was never. They want us to succeed. Um, the, the problem has always been that we have been the poor kid on the block, right? I mean, you're comparing us to a, a, a Pomona, you know, which is sitting on two and a half billion dollars and money is no object. That's not their problem. They don't worry about it. That's, that's not good or bad. It just is, right? Uh, and, and so you have these, this incredible disparity in resources and how you function as a, as a consortium. The vast majority of the issues in the consortium are among the five undergraduate schools. You know, they exchange courses, the students go back and forth in dorms and housing and, you know, what, you know those kind of things like that. That Those are the biggest set of issues. So we have always been, in some ways, peripheral. Okay? Uh, and, and you've got CGU, which is just doesn't have any science kind of things, and we're the science kind of place. So, you know, we're pretty separate. We're accepted. I mean, nobody, nobody would, you know, there was no hostility. That was never the problem. Um, but, but, but I would say we have had to earn the respect. And there, there has been a, a, an ar- arrogance of the other colleges. Well, you know, our students, our students graduate here and go to, go to Harvard. So we have had very few Claremont College graduates come to KGI. But the number is changing. That actually is, it's actually getting, getting a little bit, a little bit better. Um, so, so we have had to earn that respect. The one thing that really rocked it 
among for the whole night was Minerva. Hmm. They lost. They lost it when we decided to incubate the Minerva schools. You know, they had. I don't know what their visions really were. Tell you the truth, I mean, you know, hordes of Minerva students invading Claremont. I, you know, I, I, I you know, well, I, Minerva set out to disrupt their business model. Well, and I will say we made the offer. Uh, we, we made the offer. Well, Ben and, and, and uh, Steve made the offer that we would remember we would teach a course for Pomona, and the Pomona faculty rejected it. We said we do it for free. We'll teach a course, whatever. It was. And the Pomona faculty rejected it, and the reason was, well, what do we do if they like it? <laughs> you remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Okay. Well, that I got to scratch my head on that one. Okay. <laughs> But they had, like I say, literally, they had these visions of, of, of um, uh, you know, hordes of Minerva students. I, you know, I don't know, invading or what it was. Uh, yeah, you know, they had. Uh, well, and then I, I, I really liked it because I, 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 uh, I got. I, well, I was, I was attacked, personally and professionally, by some of the other presidents during that episode. And one of the attacks was, "Do you mean you're going to have untenured faculty teaching undergraduates?" Yeah, I will. Yeah, we do. And what do you call your contingent faculty, which actually make up more of your faculty than your tenure track faculty? So let's 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 look in the mirror. So so there were those kind of things. I mean, back to the things that you guys dealt with. Oh, they're not going to have tenure. So obviously it's a you know the the nonsense the nonsense that went on in those days. So it, it was a piece of that, um, and I think they also feared because at that time Ben was talking about having something like ten thousand students or something like that. That really set them on, on the edge. You remember that one? The scaling model that Ben originally had in mind. Yeah, it, yeah. which has shifted. And, and uh, you know, so, so we, oh, and, and as a matter of fact, so, yeah, you, I don't know if you know, but the, 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 the President's Council, uh, it's a rotating chairmanship. So it goes through all the schools. You know, you have to have been here a couple of years before you do a chair. They, they kicked me off of my rotation uh, because they were so upset about it. Oh no, not that! There's no power. It's just kind of a pain. You got to feed everybody, you know, you know, six times or whatever. So I, I, you know, that that was so they were they were they were showing their anger by that. And whoopee doopee. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, again, it's you want to be entrepreneurial, you're gonna have you're gonna have to you have to do a little egg you know eggshell breaking here because that's the way it goes. Anyway, so but but it was so upsetting to them that they actually engaged in a process of changing the Constitution because there was no, they would have kicked us out of the consortium if they could have. It was that level of anger. So they took on a two-year process of completely redoing the Claremont College's trans, uh, uh, giving them the power to kick out institutions if they did something pretty heinous. And so, you know, so sure, do it. I mean, you know, whatever. I mean, I, you know. So, but but two things came out of that. One of them was, I mean, I think there really does need to be a mechanism for kicking somebody out. I mean, if all of a sudden we turned into a you know a for-profit religious organization, I would say we shouldn't be a member. Of the, I mean, I would, you know, I would, somebody else did it. I wouldn't wouldn't want them either, right? So so there needs to be that kind of thing. So anyway, they they developed what, what essentially I, I joke about is sort of a three bucket model. So there, there's 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 three buckets of change. One of the kinds of change. Okay, we're starting a new program in in community medicine. Basically, you just inform everybody, and everybody, you know, gives you input. I mean, I'm yeah, sure, congratulations, well, that's a great idea, or would you like to, whatever way. Just can we, can we work with you on this or that or whatever? That's the one model. The other is the extreme. Okay, we're going to be we become a for-profit religious welding model that focuses on cosmetology. 
okay, we really need to vote on that puppy because that, that one really is going to change. And we're going to have 100,000 students, and, you know, whatever. Anyway, that one they should vote on. That one they should say, does it really fit with being a member of the composite? But then kind of everything else rests in the middle. And what they can do is they then basically give, you know, you, you tell them about it and they give you your, they give you input. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we have gone to this model, which again, they, they feel better about it. I don't, but it took two years of really hard work. Bob Curry worked his butt off on this, on this, uh, on this constitutional committee, literally for two years, they met weekly, hourly. I don't know what they met. But it was, it was an enormous task. So now they can kick us out if we do whatever. But what happened was essentially because Minerva really didn't affect them at all, it's 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 kind of a non-issue. And the wonderfulest part of it is CMC has reached out to Minerva to teach them how to do online. <laughs> so it comes around. You know, maybe online isn't the evil. I mean, the the only the only thing that they that they that the that the that the Minerva students do here is they use the library electronically. Okay, you know, pay for it, take care of it, whatever, you know, it's just so, anyway, so, so it, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, anyway, it, it turned out to be, um, I think, an experience for the consortium, uh, but the consortium, I, you know, I want to say, it, it, in some ways, it really does work well, and it, we really do, you know, if anybody attacks any of us, we really do defend each other. Uh, we are, you know, we're, we're brothers and sisters that, that fight, like brothers and sisters do, uh, but at the end, I think we, we, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're together and we work together. And, you know, and if we have a real problem, they will come to our aid. You know, and we have that, we have that backing. If there's a real crisis, we, we work together. I mean, just, just, we, we've just gotten done with the, with a, with a set of sessions on, uh, and we just had our, our retreat, got done yesterday um, among the presidents. And, you know, one of the issues is, is, uh, you know, how do we come back uh, to, 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 uh, you know, in-person learning, uh, when some of the some of the faculty, some of the like the AAUP is demanding that the AAUP demanded that every faculty member get to decide individually whether their course is online or in person, hmm. and we just said no. Nope. Yep. But we're doing it as a consortium, and the reason is because we teach courses together. So you know, if your faculty decides to do it online and my faculty doesn't, in this well, what do the students do? I don't know. You know, so, so and, you know, and we have students who come to some of our courses and, and TMPs and things like that. Anyway, so we were able to band together for those kinds of things. So, no, as, an, as a set of organizations, regardless of your faculty voting to do whatever you want, you can't do it. So move on. Mm -hmm. So so I think there's some real advantages to it. Um, but, again, we, we have, to, we, we, you know, again, as you can imagine, I'm pretty loud and vocal about saying, hey, no, 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 no. We're not going to spend that kind of money just because you can spend it uh, and we can afford it. So, so there, there's those tensions. Uh, but I think overall it's pretty healthy. Great. So I know we've we've gone over the time we allotted. So I just wanted to wind up as you think about um, the other people within higher ed who might want to start a whole new institution or set of programs. What are the lessons you draw from the KGI experience for folks who really want to create new things and innovate within higher ed? Oh, that's a long one, dude. I, um... You know, I think you have to be prepared to change and and fail. Things are going to work and things are going to not work, and it's really hard to predict which ones are going to work. And I think you have to have a you think you have to have a, a tolerance for fa 
failing and changing. That to me is 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 enormously important. Um, you're going to get things wrong because the market is changing so fast. Um, and I would also say, I mean, I would certainly. The other thing I think, which which we probably should have done more of when we when we started out, was market more, spend more of your resources on marketing. Um, you know, you only have so much. So you know, where do you spend it? Where do you not spend it? I mean, I I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what I'd have done specifically different, but but I could just say overall marketing. You know, I don't know. Could we have done it better? Could have probably. I don't know. I don't know where the resources would have come from, frankly. But maybe we should have should have done that. Um, Gosh, I'd have to think about that. That's that's a discussion, and I'd love to have that discussion as, as we sort of think about specific things where we succeeded, we failed, and what do we learn from it. But you got to be ready to learn. Jim, Jim, you've been there through the entire journey. But what what do you think? You know, there's this this decision to be made when you you take the leap into a new program. Do you try to fill a new niche um, and invent something, or do you Try to modify something that everybody knows already, and and you know we we had a, a handshake that we would not invent a new degree. We just did it. But then we just did we just it. did it. So, we just did it. We just did it. Okay, so take your hand away, man. Yeah, we said we'd never do that again, David. That's a great point. And so what do we do? We start with a grant. Yeah. So do you, okay, yeah. The, the recruiting for a program that everybody knows what it is, you might not be competitive. So if you invent the same degree that Caltech's doing over here and you're, you're, you're doing the same thing, how do we recruit into that? But if you invent something that's brand new that nobody knows what it is, the, the individual yeah. acquisition cost for a student yeah, um, goes up. It just goes way, way up. And so you, you try all these things and you try to leverage the adjacencies the best you can. And, and yeah, and, and the other thing, to, along with Jim's point, you also have to have a tolerance for hanging in with some stuff every Give it some time. These things take time to kind of filter out, and you'll keep refining and doing stuff. I mean, had we abandoned the MBS in the beginning, I think it would have been a horrid mistake. Oh, yeah. I All mean, of our alumni. Yeah, yeah. I mean, wait, wait a minute. You know, what am I, chopped liver, right? I think they'd have been, so so yeah. you have to hang with it and be willing to say, I mean, we lost money on those degrees for the first, I don't know how many years. Yeah, maybe still. I don't know. But but it's just, and, and, and um, yeah. I, I I wish I could give you some more some more insight into it, but my God, be be prepared for a rough slog. And the other thing is, you know, I know people have said, oh, you should have more money. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's never a bad thing. I mean, don't 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 ever get me wrong. I mean, should we have gotten more money before we started? Uh, I don't know. We started. We started with right. It wasn't, wasn't bad. We were here, so obviously it was it was enough. But I would also argue I would rather be in a place. Which had more ideas than money because you're forced to really think about what you do. Uh, because you, 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 again, as a startup, you're not going to have the resources to go paper over your mistakes with money, mm-hmm. and that's a huge cultural difference from from the you know from the from the big institutions. You know that you don't have the resources to you screw up, man. It, somebody's going somebody's going to hurt. Great. Well, Jim, Shelley, thank you so much for taking the time. It's great to hear about all the progress KGI has made over the last couple of decades and really appreciate it. Looking forward to the 25th anniversary. So uh, We are too. Say hi. Absolutely. Say hi to Susan. We, We look forward to seeing you. Will do.